Welcome to Lyndon Lopate at Large. I'm Lyndon Lopate. In her new book, The Rhetorical Road to Brown versus Board of Education, Wanda Little Fenimore provides the first full-length account of a rhetorical campaign condemning white supremacy and segregation that was launched by Elizabeth Avery Waring, a twice-divorced Northern socialite, and her third husband, federal judge Julius Waddies Waring. It's published by the University Press of Mississippi and brings Wanda Little Fenimore to our show now. Welcome. Didn't the Supreme Court's 1896 decision in Plessy versus Ferguson provide legal sanction for separate but equal policies? Yes, that was the precedent that actually gave state legislatures the, um, the means to institute legal segregation. And the court ruled that the existence of laws based on race was not inherently racial discrimination? Correct. It, it's interesting. The, the court ruled that separate facilities was not inherently unequal. That's in 1896. And that any such reading on the part of um, black people was, was a personal shortcoming. Instead, as long as the facilities were separate um, but equal, um, there was no discrimination. So when did uh, we start seeing signs that said white or colored? Right, um, right after the decision? Well, or did it take a while? Um, well, there's some discussion among historians about um, the exact date of when Jim Crow originated we can look around the beginning of the 20th century and see those white only signs. And of course, um, even with World War II, Jim Crow and legalized segregation was just firmly entrenched, right? It, it was part of everyday life for uh, white and black people across the South. Um, in the book, I say from birth to burial. Uh, there wasn't any aspect of of a person's life that wasn't dictated by the race line. Where does the term Jim Crow come from? Well, it came from some minstrel shows, um, and it, of course, is a derogatory term, and we've had scholars recently here in the 21st century talk about the new Jim Crow um, and so it's going to be the discrimination, the oppression um, at, a, at a state level um, against certain groups of people. So the decision was as long as they were equal, they could be separate. Uh, were they ever equal? No, they weren't. And so that, that um, was the first line of attack. Um, from Charles Hamilton Houston, they they were never equal, right? Never ever equal, um, and and not just slight disparities. The the differences were were glaring. Um, they were horrendous. Charles Hamilton Houston went across South Carolina in the 1930s, and he documented the conditions in the rural black schools. Um, and the same thing happened as these school segregation cases were, were moving through the lower district courts. We're talking about schools with um, no electricity, a warning, running water, um, indoor toilets, um, 
often the school day started for the teachers and students by gathering wood for a pot belly stove. And I'm not talking about early 20th century. We're talking about the 1940s. This is how the, the differences between the schools. Um, Judge Waring remarked, you know, the white schools in the towns um, where they were okay. At least they were made of brick. They had indoor plumbing. But then he would see as he traveled across South Carolina to districts to preside, the the black schools, he he called them shacks. They, they were shameful. And this is uh, really all begins after the end of World War II. Um, what led black parents in rural South Carolina to decide to begin, begin to seek equal educational opportunities for their children in 1947? Well, um, in Clarendon County, the, the situation there in 1947 was the the school board provided bus transportation free to, to the white students, but did not offer it to black students. And so some of the uh, students had, the black students had to sometimes walk as long as nine miles and they would get taunted and um, teased and actually physically abused uh, by the white students on the school bus. The school bus would go streaming by them and students would throw stuff out trying to hit the black students walking on the road. And so the parents, they started organizing and the first thing, the first thing they wanted was free bus transportation. And they sued for that? They went to court? Yes, that was their first case from Clarendon County was a school, um, uh, bus transportation class. They filed that. It was scheduled to be heard in 1948. Um, but it was dismissed on a technicality. Um, the, there was a lone plaintiff, just one, Levi Pearson, and his property straddled um, the district line. So he paid his taxes to one district um, and his school, his students went, his children went to school in another district. And so the outcome was he, he didn't have standing to, to file or, or to sue. And so it was dismissed on a technicality initially. And. Well, that was an, an odd situation. There must have been other parents who wouldn't have had that problem. Well, correct. But the, the, the major obstacle was securing a plaintiff who was willing um, and had the courage to withstand the certain repercussions that would come if they stood as a plaintiff against the white school board. And so that's why initially it was just one plaintiff, one, one guy who, who said, yeah, I'm going to do it. Um, and they learned a lesson. They learned a really valuable lesson with that dismissal. Um, and the, the next case, they had more plaintiffs. And, but there were two unsuccessful lawsuits. Uh, and were the courts deciding on splitting hairs in their decisions? No, so the first case was dismissed on that technicality. Then they um, marshaled the resources. They got uh, a bunch of plaintiffs. Um, so if one was disqualified, the the case would go on. 
So the, the issue with that second case it was that um, Judge Waring didn't like the way it was phrased. Uh, Thurgood Marshall, in, in the complaint, it sounded like an equalization case to Judge Waring. And so an equalization case is where the community ser- um, sues to try to get the equal part of separate but equal. Well, Judge Waring wanted a direct assault on segregation. And so he, he let Marshall dismiss, uh, withdraw that case and refile a, a new one that attacked and challenged the South Carolina state constitution that mandated separate schools for black and white children. And that was the, the third lawsuit in 1950, which eventually was decided in Brown versus Board of Education? Correct. That was the one. Well, um, you've already mentioned Judge Waring. Interesting. Um, his first name is Julius, but he it was Jay Waddy's Waring. President Roosevelt nominated him to a seat in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of South Carolina uh, on December 18, 1941. Um, what had he done before then? Well, before then, he was uh, a big part of the the Democratic Party machine in, in Charleston. He was a native of Charleston, an eighth-generation Charlestonian. He graduated from the College of Charleston, then read the law, um, passed the bar, entered into private practice. Then he was an assistant U.S. attorney under Wilson and went back to to private practice. In private practice, he had a lot of opportunities to um, try cases in federal court. And so federal judges are a little unique and that of course they're not elected and their salary comes from the federal government. So they have a lot of independence and autonomy, which is what judge Waring wanted. How strong was Waring's opposition to segregation at the beginning when he was first uh, put on the court by, by Roosevelt? There's not a lot of indication that he was against segregation, but before he went on the court, he was, um, you know, his, his family had an enslaved people of African descent. Um, he had an uncle who fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War. And so there's not a lot of indication that he was concerned about civil rights or racial equality prior to going um being sworn in as a federal judge. In fact, most folks weren't too worried about him being on the federal bench. He he was somebody they, based on his record, that they could count on to to uphold the Southern way of life, which is a euphemism for for segregation. Did he sit on any of the major cases involved in the early legal battles of the American Civil Rights Movement? Um, he, one of his first, um, controversial rulings was in Elmore versus Rice, where he, he opened the all white Democratic 
primary to, to black voters. And it was hmm. uh, really catapulted him to a national stage and turned him into a pariah um, there in Charleston that he was giving black people the vote. So even before the segregation case, he was using his position to advance the cause of racial equality through the law. And he uh, couldn't have pleased the people in his area when, as chief judge, he ended segregated seating in the courtroom and chose a black bail of John Fleming. Those were all smaller, more incremental moves towards his rulings. And, And so when we look at those kinds of things, it gives a lot of insight into he he was ruling according to the Constitution, according to the law, federal law. Um, and he was also acting in a way so that people could see the the he often said the world's not going to end. The sky is not going to fall if a black person votes or there's a black bailiff in my courtroom. Are hmm. you sitting next to? Um, a, a black person. Yet the other thing to keep in mind, he spent a lot of time um, in other di- jurisdictions and other parts of the country's country. And what he saw in those courtrooms, he tried to bring back to to South Carolina. Oh, well, he spent a fair amount of time in New York City. We'll get to that in a little while. Uh, my guest is Wanda Little Fenimore. Her book, The Rhetorical Road to Brown versus Board of Education, Elizabeth and Waddy's Waring's Campaign, published by the University Press of Mississippi. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Considering the, uh, the subject matter here, should I be surprised that this book was published by the University Press of Mississippi? Uh, no, you shouldn't be surprised. Um, it, it's in a fabulous series there, Race Rhetoric in the Media, um, and, and certainly fits with, with the Waring's campaign. They use speeches, they use the media, um, and it's, they shouldn't be surprised. South Carolina didn't get a lot of pu- the publicity that the Mississippi and Alabama's did, um, the South Carolina legislature did a pretty good job of, of keeping the state out of the headlines. Um, but some really significant civil rights battles were fought in the state. You began the, your book with your first chapter begins with Japan's formal surrender in World War II on September 2nd, 1945. Uh, why then? Is, is that really a, a key moment in the story that you're telling here? Well, it is for a couple of reasons. Um, First and foremost, you know, after the World War II, the United States, um, you know, it had to grapple with this this lag in in its morals and in trumpeting itself as the leader of of democracy, the global leader in democracy, Hmm. uh, when you had discrimination, racism, lynchings here on American soil. Um, and 
and so the, there was that moment after World War II. And then the other reason I started it there was the story of um, Isaac Woodard Jr., who served overseas during World War II. And when he returned, he was on a bus trying to get his uh, wife and return to the Bronx. And he was beaten Hmm. by a white police officer and permanently um, blinded. And then that trial of that white police officer, Judge Waring presided and his wife, Elizabeth, was in the courtroom during the trial. And it was a transformative moment for both of them. Um, Not surprisingly, the all-white jury um, acquitted the white officer. Um, But it, it set them on this course of educating themselves. They sat in the courtroom and saw this black man who was testifying to getting beaten and they saw his blind eyes and, and heard that jury's verdict of not guilty. You have to wonder how he would have reacted to some of the more recent events that have occurred that sound kind of similar. Um, sadly, they're very similar. And, um, I think they would be equally outraged in 2023 as they were in 1946. Um, It was pretty amazing in 1946 that the the Justice Department actually indicted and and brought the officer to trial. I mean, you got to think about this. It's 1946. Um, uh, Judge Waring was pretty sure it was a political ploy. It was uh, midterm elections, but it went to trial, and that's pretty amazing. Um, the change we can see a little bit is we, we we see much more of those indictments and prosecutions now than we would have seen in 46. Wasn't his dissent in Briggs versus Elliott uh, a key Factor in Brown versus Board of Education? Yes, it really is. Um, Judge Waring, with, with his dissent in, in Briggs versus Elliott, he. What was that offered, case about? I'm sorry? What was that case about? Briggs versus Elliott? Yeah, it was, was a school segregation case, right? 1947. What was, what was being argued? All right, so Briggs versus Elliott was a school segregation case. 20 parent plaintiffs from Clarendon County, and they were challenging the South Carolina Constitute, state constitution that mandated separate schools. So they were, they were challenging Plessy v. Ferguson. They were challenging separate versus, separate but equal is what they were challenging. And then in Judge Wary's dissent, he offered that separate can never be equal. Segregation is per se, per se unequal. And that was, we see that in the Brown decision with segregation is inherently unequal. Well, it was an so he did. 
It's an interesting. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's an interesting time because uh, Woodrow Wilson had been president, and he had been a kind of supporter of of the separa- separation of the races. In fact, um, even showed uh, one of the most controversial films in the history of, of Hollywood in the White House. Yes, he did. Yes. So so Wilson did um, show Birth of a Nation there in the White House. There was quite a hue and cry about it um, across different across the country. Um, and wearing um, he was part of the Democratic Party machine there in, in, in Charleston. But he um, greatly respected and admired Franklin Roosevelt, and not just because he appointed him to the to the bench, um, but he considered Roosevelt a very courageous person uh, to to lead the country and to do the things that people wouldn't like and that would be uncomfortable. Um, to to try to lead the country out of the depression. Did Roosevelt speak out against segregation? Well, now that's a good question for a Roosevelt expert <laughs> like Davis Houck. I know he didn't really defend the Jews of Europe um, d- during Nazi prose- persecution. So um, I guess uh, sometimes he just saw himself as a pragmatist when it came to these kinds of things. Correct. Now, his wife was much more active. So Roosevelt, as president, didn't directly speak out against segregation. However, his wife was very active um, and pursuing civil rights and racial equality. Now, Waring had been initially supported by the establishment of Charleston, how much did that change after he divorced his first wife and married Elizabeth Avery, who was a socialite from New York City? Well, she she was a socialite from Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that she was a native of Detroit, and their their marriage was a social scandal, right? And and they were pretty much socially ostracized after. Um, their divorces and their marriage. Well, she'd been divorced two times, which uh, was even unusual at that time, wasn't it? Oh, it was highly unusual for for someone to be divorced once, much less twice. And she divorced the second husband to marry Judge Waring. She went off to Reno for, for both of her divorces. And South Carolina, the law had no provision to dissolve a marriage so uh judge waring's first wife went down to florida so there it was a scandal and and they were ostracized socially um and they may have recovered at some point but then once they um started speaking out against segregation once they started speaking out against white supremacy once judge waring's opened up the black vote, you know, they had crossed the Rubicon. It was over and done with for them and South Carolina. 
How much of a role had she played in his transition from being a racial moderate to becoming a proponent of radical change? Well, that is a $100,000 question for most folks. If if you look at some of the letters from the time, um, everyone pointed at her. She was to blame. Um, but then if, if you go into Judge Waring's oral history, which is like 200 pages long, he, he will say, you know, they, they came to this realization together. Mm-hmm. He was already um, moving in that direction. Yes. So. Yes, most definitely. So they, you know, they had that transformative moment at, at the, um, seeing Isaac Woodard blinded and testifying at this white officer beating him and the jury acquitting the, the, the man. And, and then from there, they, as I said, they set on themselves out on this um, journey of self-discovery. They were doing all kinds of reading. They were trying to connect with other people and trying to really learn more about how did this happen? What's going on? How can we change it? And, and so it was a, a becoming, right? A journey, a process. And, and they went through it together. She often read to him at night. Um, he, his eyes, eyes would get tired <laughs> and it really was a joint venture. Did he feel like he was alone in much of this? Were other, were there other judges who shared some of his beliefs? Uh, not in the South. Um, they well, she was had, from the North. You say Detroit, but also she had lived in New York City, hadn't she? Right. So when Judge Waring retired in 1952, they they moved, they moved to to yeah. New York City, and they had spent a lot of time there. Um, they they lived in Charleston. But then Judge Waring presided in New York City. So they spent a lot of time there, like probably three months a year. I mean, even during this time, he was coming to New York and and uh, sitting on some trials. Correct. Correct. And I think they stayed at the Essex Hotel. And Mrs. Waring worked diligently to cultivate this network of folks uh, with influence who thought the same way as they did that were working for the same causes as them. So Judge Waring didn't have judges necessarily in South Carolina who felt the same as he did. But through this network that they cultivated and the publicity from the primary case, they had a lot of friends across the nation, right? And, and we can see their popularity um, growing outside of the South in direct proportion to the animosity towards them in the South. What did the Ku Klux Klan say about them? Well, they sent... Um, and other groups of that sort. That, well... They received quite a few threatening letters. Um, Judge Waring received one right as he was getting ready to rule on the the primary cases. Um, after 
uh, Mrs. Waring uh, delivered her explosive speech to the Cummins Street YWCA in Charleston. She received some threats also. Um, their home was attacked a couple of times. Once a, um, a cross was burning outside of it hmm. when they were in New York. Another time, it was um, some pellets were thrown at it. So they received threats. The house was <clears throat> was attacked. But I have not discovered any, like, physical attempts on them. They also received the support of groups like the NAACP. Well, they had the support how, of the NAACP. How important would that be at that time? Well, they had that support, but they also supported the NAACP. So there were a couple of resolutions. The NAACP um, supported them. Other groups supported them. There was a pilgrimage to their house after the um, the the uh, their house was attacked, and as a visible sign of the wearings were not alone. But what you need to keep in mind, it wasn't white folks in Charleston. It wasn't white folks in South Carolina. These were people who were coming from out of state or it was the, the black people in Charleston and South Carolina who were coming out with this sign of support. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. School days I learned your dates and numbers I learned that you were the winners That you were civilized And I I was your burden I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Wanda Little Fenimore. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a copy of her book, a free copy of her book, The Rhetorical Road to Brown versus Board of Education, Elizabeth and Waddy's Warring's Campaign. Uh, it is published by the University uh, Press of Mississippi. Um, uh, just go online to give to wbai.org. That's give in the number two wbai.org or call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Do it during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation or more uh, in the name of London Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much because we really do need that show of support from our listeners to do this kind of show. And my guest is Wanda Lee Little Fenimore. Her book, The Rhetorical Road to Brown versus Board of Education, is published by University Press of Mississippi. She's an assistant professor of speech communication. Um, now, uh, they they did a series of speeches, and in them, 
The warrings expose the incongruity between American democratic ideals and the reality for black Americans in the Jim Crow South. Um, who came to those speeches? Well, it, it depends on where the speech was. They delivered them across the, the country. Were they Most integrated the time, audiences? Yes, yes, um, for for the most part. Now, and for the most part, they, they were friendly audiences. So they were they were people who um, probably agreed with, with what the Boyerians were saying, maybe not the way they were saying it. Um, but beyond the audiences, when they delivered the speeches, uh, the Boyerians took a lot of trouble to make sure that these speeches got in the newspapers. And so even if someone didn't go to the speech, to the venue, they could read about it in their newspaper. And it was their speeches were in the white press and the black press. But uh, there, there isn't a, a, um, a large record um you you have dug up all sorts of information that most of us have not heard of before. What went on there? You were right. I have dug up a lot of information I mean, that people have, haven't heard about before. Are famous in, in uh, the Carolinas or in the South? Because I never heard of them. And and they lived to, uh, for a while in New York. They did. They They lived in New York from 1952 to 1968. Um, there, there are some folks here in South Carolina who, who know of the Warings. In Charleston, there's a statue of Judge Waring. The, the federal courthouse is, has been renamed ap- after him. Hmm. Um, usually, if, if you've heard of Elizabeth Waring, it's as his wife and for one speech that she delivered. Um, and if you hear about him, it, it might, it's because usually because of his descent in, in Briggs. Um, I started with one speech of Elizabeth Waring's, and as I was researching that, I saw they were delivering speeches left and right across the country. I was like, what's going on here? And it became really obvious they they were supporting these segregation school segregation cases. Um, they, you know, segregation was a blight upon American democracy, and a big obstacle to correcting that was um, people being silent, especially white people, not so, speaking out against this injustice. So they urged their audiences to pressure elected representatives to force southern states to end legal segregation. Um, who would have done that? The Congress? Uh, yes. So, so if you need to keep in mind that Judge Waring was a federal judge. And he was a huge advocate for the, the, the force of federal law to, to correct, um, state inadequacies. And so they were asking audiences to get in touch with their elective representatives, uh, and speak out against segregation, speak out against white supremacy, um, to try to neutralize the the stronghold that Southern Democrats had in in the Congress. In a speech in a church in Harlem, he said, quote, 
The cancer of segregation will never be cured by the sedative of gradualism. Uh, were, was most of the talk at the time, uh, well, it, things will get better. Um, because hasn't it been argued that the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 was inevitable? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, well, <laughs> so. We have time. Say what you got to say. <laughs> yeah, so, so um, you know, Elizabeth and Wadies were, um, the, they were an either or, right, mindset. And they were incredibly passionate. They saw this problem and, and they really did see it as harming America and Wadies had this love of the South, and he saw segregation and racism as as harming white people. Hmm. Um, and In what so way? they use this. I'm sorry. How did they say it was harming white people? White people were getting the advantage, weren't they? Yes, but it it was eroding their souls. Hmm. It was by treating others. So horribly, you, they couldn't be clean. They they could not have a free conscience, um, and so it had to be removed. And, and they use this medical analogy quite a bit. They called segregation, Jim Crow, a cancer, a disease, and and using that kind of analogy. You, you turn to how do we cure it and you can't cure it with gradualism, right? Or with soft stepping kind of methods. And so they condemned gradualism, which was this idea, well, you know, in time, white people can get used to this or, well, we can just make stuff equal and it'll be okay. And they were like, no, any compromise here is not going to fix this problem. And so we've got to cure the cancer, cut it out. And those were the words that they used um, to, to restore democracy, to realize the promise of democracy. They pointed to the contradiction between segregation and the claim in the U.S. Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. How did white supremacists respond to that? Well, they, um, you know, part of what they were reading um, a- after the the trial with with Isaac Isaac Woodard was um, an American dilemma. And in there, one of the concepts that they embraced, uh, because it spoke so much to the way that they conceived of the Constitution and American democracy, was this idea of an American, the American creed, right? Where all people are created equal, all people are treated equal. And then the American dilemma is how um, black people were treated just opposed against this, this ideal. And so for white supremacists, um, there was a different view and belief about black people as persons, as citizens, 
um, as um, as persons they were seen as not really totally human. Correct. Correct. Well, it's, that's hard to argue <laughs> when you're dealing with some uh, very competent black person. <laughs> Oh, or but any black person, for that matter. And there are some white people who are pretty stupid. Well, and, and see, and this is the kind of thing that Judge Waring and Elizabeth, too, because she sat in at his courtroom. That was the, that was the contradiction that they would see. They would see, you know, a, a, a black person walk in, and, and most white people wouldn't address him as Mr. or a woman as Mrs., right, to confer that kind of dignity, that human um, personhood upon them. But then you would see, you know, maybe an uneducated um, person, and because they were white, they received that courtesy title. And they usually constant contradictions that they would see across in his courtroom and that they just couldn't reconcile, right? And so they saw a real American dilemma. And so they were trying to get other white people to see it too. Um, through supporting the school segregation cases, asking people to get into contact with their representatives. Um, and you're right. It, it it seems impossible, but it was rampant. Didn't they receive a lot of letters that revealed the terms upon which segregation was defended and the reasons those who opposed white supremacy remained silent? Yes, they, they did, especially Mrs. Waring, um, what did um, why it, her in particular because they saw her as the real problem here? Well, she was an easy target hmm. um, because she she was from the north, and the the Confederacy was still alive and well in the South uh, in mid twentieth century, uh, and she was a woman. So she was a, a, a much easier target than, than Judge Waring. So if you look at, as I did, all of the letters that they received, there are a couple of constants. Um, and one was this idea that we're already making a lot of progress, so just leave us alone and we'll take care of it. That that was one of the big things. The, the other... Um, one was, well, we'll just make the separate facilities equal and it'll, it'll be okay. And another way that segregation was defended was uh, relying upon this, this erroneous belief that, that black people were inferior to white people. And so those were some of the terms that were used to, to defend segregation, which of course they're completely incongruent with all men are created equal. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Wanda Little Fenimore, and her book, The Rhetorical Road to Brown versus Board of Education, Elizabeth and Wadey's Waring's Campaign, is published by the University Press of Mississippi. 
So how were they dealt with by political, editorial, and social leaders in in South Carolina? How how did they react to what the Warings were doing? Well, they um, they try to impeach um, Judge Waring a couple of times. Um, the 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 News of Courier, which was the newspaper in Charleston, um, mm-hmm. reprinted a lot of Judge Waring's interviews, or even some of Mrs. Waring's interviews, and they were pretty derogatory um, and caddish in in their commentary and pointed to Judge Wary's history in the Democratic Party and being part of the um the machine that he was trying to take down. And then they, they pointed out to divorces, you know, how how can a judge be sitting on the bench when he divorced his wife? So that's how the elected leaders responded, try to get him off the bench. One time, um, the state South Carolina legislature um, passed a resolution to buy them one-way tickets out of the state, provided they never returned. Well, they you said they tried to impeach him. How successful was that? Uh, it None of the impeachment attempts were successful. Hmm. And Judge Waring welcomed the those those attempts because it was more publicity. Uh, it highlighted that he was following federal law and these folks were following white supremacy. So they weren't successful. They were a little bit of a scare um, and and people supported him through letters and some donations. Um, but they weren't successful in the end. So he assumed senior status in 1952. Uh, isn't that when he left Charleston and moved to New York City? Yeah, as soon as he did, he he as soon as he'd been on the bench for ten years, he um, he retired. And I think his last day on the bench was February fifteenth, 1952. And then three days later, he and Elizabeth boarded a train for New York. Mm-hmm. And he he didn't sit on any on the bench after that. Uh, no the the Briggs case ended up. There were a couple of more hearings in South Carolina for it, and he refused to to continue um, sitting on that three judge panel mm-hmm. because it was they were just discussing equalization. Was he um, cited at all in uh, when the Supreme Court was arguing Brown versus Board of Education in 1954? Oh, <clears throat> very excited! He and um, he and Elizabeth had had a little get together at their apartment there in New York City. Their their phone was ringing off the hook, and they were receiving telegrams, and he re. Uh, January released a, a press release and they were just ecstatic as, as were all of their supporters. And at the time, a lot of them gave him the credit for that legal, uh, 
mind of his that in his previous descent got repeated in the Brown's decision. So um, is this the first full-length account of what the Warings did? Why has their story been largely forgotten? Or has it well, not been forgotten in South Carolina? Yeah, I would say it hasn't. At least Judge Waring's role has not been forgotten in South Carolina. Um, Elizabeth is still pretty much lost to history. Or um, here in the state, she's she's kind of erased. Um, Although you give her the first credit here. You say in your subtitle, it's Elizabeth and Wadey's Warren's campaign. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. As I said, I started with her speech that she delivered um, to the Common Street YWCA in January 1950. That's where I started. Um, and, and then as I was researching that, I saw the rest of the the speeches, started finding some of them and, and his rulings, you know, uh, as a ju- federal judge, Judge Wadey's had a platform and we, we often, um, these public roles are the ones that history books remember. But then often women, especially in the 20th century, didn't have as public as roles and they often get lost in, in some of the history. We only have a couple of minutes left. Is there anything you want to add to uh, this story that I have left out? No, you've asked some great questions. Thank you for letting me talk about them, and and thank you for featuring this book. They were fascinating people, flawed but courageous. Well, he died in 1968. Was much mentioned of his role in this history at that time? Uh, yes. If you look at his obituary and if you look to, at his funeral in Charleston, um, not many pe- white people showed up. Um, so they all remembered who he was and what, what he did. Um, so he died in 1968 and nationally his role was recognized in his time on the bench um, Elizabeth died less than a year later um, after him. And they're buried next to each other down in Charleston. This is uh, your first book, although you've written articles. Uh, has this led you to thinking about other books? Well, yes, it has. <laughs> What's the, um, when can I expect to be talking to you again about an interesting topic? Um. Well, I'm working on a a project about Ruby Cornwell, who was Elizabeth's dear friend, oh. who was an activist from Charleston, who lived to be a hundred years old, um, and working on her life and her efforts. In 1963, at the ripe age of 61, she got arrested for challenging segregation at a restaurant. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing that book, and I thank you so much for being on our show today. I've been speaking with Wanda Little-Fenimore. 
her book, The Rhetorical Road to Brown versus Board of Education, Elizabeth and Wade Warren's campaign, published by the University Press of Mississippi. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. We are going through a rather rough time here at WBAI. And we're behind on our rent and on the payment for our broadcast tower. And we hope that uh, our listeners will um, help us uh, to get through this and help us to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Rhetorical Road to Brown versus Board of Education by Wanda Little Fenimore. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy. Uh, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month that allows us to plan for the future. You could do that as long as you feel uh, that you want to do it. Uh, either way, we hope you call right now because we rely totally on listener support. Uh, we're the only station in New York Radio Dell that's 100% listener sponsored. Uh, we're off for the next couple of days, but. Oh, I hope that you will join us on Thursday when we'll talk about black music with Guthrie P. Ramsey, Jr. Hope to see you then. Mm-hmm.